0: And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church.
1: Would you turn with me this morning to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Book of Titus, chapter 2. We're going to be taking our text this morning from verse 11. We have been in this series for several weeks now entitled Portraits of Grace. And we have watched on the canvas as David's life. We've had the ability to witness what God himself done to paint grace into every situation in David's life. Not just good situations, but even in the bad times of David's life. God was there to ordain and to order his footsteps and to lead him out. And today we're going to be taking our subject, our title from this subject, Grace for All. Grace for All. And we're going to take... examine the son of david and we're going to witness i hope through the next few minutes the grace that he extends to everybody titus 2 and 11 if you have that say amen Amen. for the grace of god that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men father we love you we're so thankful for the privilege to be in the house of the lord today God, I'm thankful that we're able to gather and to magnify and to lift your name, but I'm so grateful today that we can come and feast on the Word, the bread of life. I'm asking you, Lord, for the next few minutes to help us lay down whatever may be in our way or hinder us and open our hearts and our minds to receive the Word of God today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and the whole house said amen. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him how good it is to see him in church this morning. Praise God. Vague, but exciting. Vague, but exciting. These three words were handwritten across the management information proposal drafted by a man by the name of Tim, Tim Berners-Lee. He was a software engineer at a company called CERN, or better known as CERN. Tim was an Oxford-educated software engineer in March of 1989 at this large particle physics laboratory near Geneva, Switzerland. Computers at the time were not connected in any meaningful way and each computer had different information compartmentalized from the other. Software also varied so users had to learn different programs to access each computer. Information sharing was difficult at best and nearly impossible at worst. Tim thought that he had the solution, and he laid out his vision in a document called Information Management, a Proposal. And he proposed the information of a system where computers could share data through the use of an emerging technology called hypertext. His boss at CERN Company was not too impressed, hence, the words that the boss pinned across the top of his proposal vague but exciting. Yet he permitted Tim on his own time to work on the project. And within a short year, Tim had written the fundamental technologies that we recognize but may not fully appreciate today. HTML, which stands for Hypertext Markup Language, which is the formatting language for the World Wide Web. URL, which stands for Uniform Resource Locator, which identifies separate sources on the web. An HTTP or Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which permits the retrieval of linked resources across the web. If any of you are not too computer tech savvy like my tech savvy like myself, what that means is when you search something in an engine on your computer, before the www dot, you'll see some forward slashes and some letters, and at the end of .com, you might see some. Backward slashes are some letters. This is what it's referring to. He created the first web browser and named it the World Wide Web App. Simply put, Tim had created the World Wide Web and something that we take for granted today. i seen something on social media today that said congratulations to all those who graduated high school without Siri. (laughs) Tim also insisted that everything he created be available to the public domain. He couldn't put a patent on it. He couldn't hold rights to it. He had to release it. He was afraid of that if it remained in his total control that it would not gain popularity. So to be universal he had to release it. There are few things in this universe that are, are or this world that are truly universal. And I'm not talking about just the world, the globe, and I'm talking about the entire cosmos. But Scripture describes a few universal things. The psalmist told us in 139 and 8 that God's presence is universal. He is everywhere at the same time. Paul told us in Romans 3 and 23 that sin is universal. All have sinned and come short. John told us in 1 John 2 and 2 that Christ's sacrifice is universal. He died for the sins of the whole world. We learned this morning in our text that saving grace is universal because he offered grace to all. The originator of the World Wide Web said that to be universal, it had to be released to everyone. And the author of our salvation, Jesus Christ, revealed the same because his grace had to be accessible to all, to whosoever will. So when we preach or when we teach or we share the gospel or we tell of the grace of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves the question, does our personal evangelism efforts or or the evangelism efforts of this church reflect God's desire for his grace to be extended to all? In other words, Are we giving the same grace to others that God gives to us? Or are we so quick to judge and point out the flaws of those that God sends to us, causing them to be ashamed or embarrassed or to feel unworthy about being in the presence of Jehovah? I don't want to offend anyone here this morning, so I want to choose my words carefully, but somewhere along the way, There have been those in the apostolic Pentecostal way that have felt it upon themselves to be the one to to do the fixing up. To do the dressing up. When God sends a soul through the door on one Sunday, we want to make sure by next Sunday they look just like we do. And that if they don't, they're really not welcome in the house of the Lord and I'm not talking about please don't misunderstand me this morning I'm not talking about watering down the gospel I'm not talking about compromising the doctrine and I'm not talking about taking away from holiness and righteousness what I'm talking about is when God sends people through those doors see there's a reason why people come because they're hungry, they're searching, they're lost they have no hope, they're looking for hope and God forbid they come through these doors. See, I, I'm a personal believer that in our life, God is going to send people in our path that we will come in contact with, that we have the ability to share this gospel with. And God help us if we hurt them or cut them because I believe on the day of judgment, their blood will be on our hands, and we're going to have to answer for some things if we were the one to cause someone to be hurt. The Holy Ghost don't need no help. It pricks me in my spirit at some of our evangelism outreaches, or perhaps just on the street. Uh, sometime back, Jennifer and I was talking to a young lady, and we was discussing some Bible scriptures, and she she really liked our church. But she says, can I, can I come there if I, if I don't have a dress? If my hair's just not like y'all's, can I come? I've heard people tell me, Jerry, all I got is a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. Can, can I come? Would y'all, would y'all accept me that way? God help us, ladies and gentlemen. If whoever he sends through that door, we don't embrace and love them and show them the grace, lest, lest I forget where Jesus Christ is has brought me from. The Holy Ghost needs no help. The same Holy Ghost that was on the day of Pentecost is the same Holy Ghost in this house today. It, it, it don't need somebody to grab an individual by the ears and shake them till they get a headache and say, spit it out. When the Holy Ghost reveals itself, God will manifest himself through speaking of other tongues through every soul. In the last few weeks of this study, we have focused on david in the old testament and this morning i want to shift our attention to the one called the son of david in the new testament our lord jesus christ what does it mean that jesus is the son of david well just what it says he is in the genealogy in matthew one and luke one and it shows that jesus is a descendant directly from david jesus was called the son of david several times by people who desired miracles A woman whose daughter was tormented by demons. Two blind men on the roadside and even blind Bartimaeus called him the son of David. God promised David that a Messiah would come through his lineage. And Jesus was that promised son. Even in David's own life, his receiving and his distribution of grace pointed people to the son of David, to Jesus Christ. In early act in David's uh, kingship, he demonstrated this. He placed the Ark of the Covenant in an open tent in Jerusalem where the residue of men could could come and and worship. David also administered grace to Mephibosheth when he allowed him to come into his house and to feast at his table. You see, to to be universal, to be for everybody, grace can't be exclusive. It's got to be open and it's got to be available. God's presence could not be revealed only for Israel. It couldn't be for just one tribe, the Levites. It couldn't just be for Aaron's family. It couldn't be for one priest. When that veil was twain and two on the day that he hung on the cross, it was made available to all. Grace has a heavenly address. And grace can only be found in Jesus. The law was given through Moses, but grace came through sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin came Sin came through the sin of one man, but grace comes through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. Sin came from the earth, but grace came from heaven, and grace has a heavenly address. In Kenneth Woodward's piece, The Other Jesus, the author described the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, saying that his cross separates him from all other figures in world religions. The cross separates this truth from any other religions in the world. He pointed out in Judaism there is no precedent for a Messiah who speaks of of pain. He pointed out that in Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can accept only a Jesus who passes into a peaceful samadhi, which is a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. The figure of the crucified Christ, says Buddhist Thick Not Han, is a very painful image to me. He says it does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice for Jesus. There is, in short, ladies and gentlemen, no room in any other religion on earth for Christ who experienced a full burden of mortal existence, a God who chose to manifest himself in flesh, walk upon this earth, be tempted like as you and I. There is no other explanation for Jesus Christ this morning but love. God so loved the world, not just a few in the world, but whosoever. God gave the world a spotless lamb to be sacrificed, not just for the privileged few, but for the sins of the whole world. And as I spoke of earlier, we cannot let ourselves get caught up in the trap of being judge and jury. So what if they're not like us? So what if they're from a different culture? So what if they're from a different country? This is for the whole world. Every one of us is God's people. God did not make no mistakes in creation and he made this grace available to all. The son of David in the Old Testament was Solomon an event in his life conveyed that the love intrinsic to the future son of David the Lord Jesus Christ in the song of Solomon we read where Solomon perhaps weary of the of the day-to-day grind of the palace he disguised himself as a shepherd and he, he he went off and he he fell in love with his shepherdess and he He goes away as a common man and she knows him as just a shepherd, as a common man. And and when he brings her back to the palace and she realizes that this is a king, this is a ruler of a nation, she sums it up in Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 4 when she says, his banner over me was love. And in that same sense the world first caught a glimpse of Jesus Christ as a baby in a manger and the next glimpse the world is see is him coming back as a conquering king between two appearances, that baby in a manger and that Jesus that's going to split the eastern sky. There's one banner that's posted over all of us today and that banner is love. Someone once said that Jesus put on humanity that we might put on deity. He became the son of man that we might become the son of God. He was born contrary to the love of the nature, lived in poverty, and was reared in obscurity. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of the nature. He walked upon the billows, and he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine, and he made no charge for his service. Heaven came down in Jesus Christ, the invisible became visible, spirit became flesh, and all of this he did for a reason, that he who knew no sin could become sin for you and I. Through his entrance into this world, we can now find new life in hope. Every man, every woman, Every boy, every girl that sits in this house today, make no mistake about it, you sit here because of grace. And you sit here because Jesus Christ came to this earth, paid the ultimate sacrifice. God is love and he sheds that love abroad in our hearts. Paul said that grace brings, brings to salvation has appeared to all men. Grace is God's love and action and it cannot be confined to just a few. We're foolish to think that this is only for us. We're foolish to think that this is contained in these four walls. John said, through Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. Jesus later said, I am from above. Grace is heavenly, but thankfully it extends to the earth. You know, we can trace the path of grace through Scripture. The color of sin in Scripture is red. We know and we read that though your sins be as scarlet, God said in Isaiah, they shall be as white as snow and though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. And significantly enough, the color of redemption in scripture is also red. Only through the shedding of blood do we find remissions of sin. Sin is the color of red. So it takes Jesus' blood to cover that sin. You know, an expression by chemists is, is like dissolves like. In other words, water will not dissolve oil because they have different polarities. Yet acetone will dissolve oil because they have the same polarities. In a spiritual sense, it takes a crimson stream of blood to dissolve stubborn, stubborn sin sayings. As the old hymn asks, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The driving redemption and the driving principle of redemption throughout Scripture is that blood. See, to be spared from Jericho's destruction, Rahab had to tie a scarlet thread in her window. And metaphorically, that is a good tool that we can trace God's grace throughout Scripture. Blood was shed to cover Adam and Eve's shame. God accepted Abel's blood offering. A ram's blood was substituted for Isaac. A lamb's blood on the doorpost shielded Israel from judgment at the Passover. And in the tabernacle and temple, the sacrifices of animals' blood covered people's sins. All of this was pointing to Calvary. The cross of Jesus was not unplanned. This was not some spontaneous event that Jesus just decided to do in the end. This had been built into momentum. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And on the cross, he revealed his great grace, his love in action. The blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes a multitude of things in our lives. First, the blood of Jesus purchases our salvation. You see, some things cannot be bought with silver and gold. In his book of What Money Can't Buy, Michael J. Sandel admits that there are only a few things that money cannot buy, and he lists many of them that are for sale. He said, if you want to go to the front of the line with a pass that allow you to skip everybody else at Universal Studios, you can pay $150. Now, Personally, I wouldn't go to Universal Studios if they gave me the pass. If you find yourself going to federal prison... And you want to get a prison cell upgrade, it'll just cost you $90. If any of you ladies in the house want to be a surrogate mother, you can earn about $8,000. The right to shoot an endangered black rhino will cost you $250,000. The right to immigrate to the United States by providing jobs and paying a fee cost you a half a million dollars. But I want to be like Naboth of old who refused to put a price on his vineyard and we cannot put a price on the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. You cannot buy the blood of Jesus Christ this morning, but I've stepped to tell you, stepped to this desk to tell you today, you can receive it through faith. And you say, well Jerry, what makes the blood so valuable? When I think about him loving me enough. When you think about Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, we're talking about a God who knew the end from the beginning. We're talking about a God that would see every flaw in this house. He would see every mistake that you made. He would see you rejecting him at times, but yet he chose to place himself on a cross at any point in time. He could have called 10,000 angels. What? What would possess a man? What would make a man allow himself to be slapped in the face, to be spit between the eyes, to have his beard plucked, to be beat upon his back, and to be nailed to a cross from his palms and his feet? I'll tell you what that takes. It takes love. And he loved us enough and had enough compassion enough. Faith accesses saving grace. From man's perspective, we all stand here today amazed at grace. But from Jesus' perspective, he finds our faith or the lack of our faith somewhat amazing. Twice in the Lord's ministry, we find Jesus amazed in his hometown of Nazareth. He was amazed at the people's unbelief. Well, the Roman centurion, Jesus was amazed that so great of a faith came from an Israelite, not from a Gentile and not from an Israelite. You see, God delights in our faith. That situation you're praying for that you haven't seen come to fruition, that healing that you've been desiring, that lost one that you want to see saved, you keep being persistent, you keep praying, you keep pushing, you keep pressing and keep your faith motivated. It pleases Him. Paul said when we come before the thro- before the throne of grace boldly and claim what only He can give us. See, without faith, without faith you can't have any grace. God's grace is universally available but only accessible to those who believe. You've got to believe this. In another place, Jesus admired the trusting nature of children and he said unless we become as a child, we cannot find grace's heavenly address. It is a child's nature to believe and and to wonder about things. And As adults, Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot afford to lose a childlike spirit when it comes to our faith. In her article, Coveting Luke's Faith, Dana Tierney described how she and her husband had drifted from, if not denied, the faith of their childhood. Yet when her husband was shipped off to Iraq during the war, she was surprised at how calm their four-year-old son Luke was. One evening when Dana and Luke were watching television, a story came up describing a soldier returning home from a wedding. And Dana tried to change the channel, but but Luke asked her to leave it on that particular channel. And out of the corner of her eyes, she saw Luke steeple his fingers below his chin, and he began to pray. And she was surprised to find that her four-year-old son was praying. Somehow, Dana wrote in this article, it was that if that mustard seed of faith had found its way, into our son. And now he was revealing that he had the power to move mountains. She asked Luke when he first believed in God, he said, I don't know, mother. I've always known that God exists. And when we come to God, it must be in childlike faith. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him as our musicians come this morning if grace is within reach of a child surely we can find it too if our greatest need had been information god would have sent us an educator if our greatest need had been technology god would have sent us a scientist if our greatest need would have been money god would have sent us an economist if our greatest need had been pleasure God would have sent us an entertainer but our greatest need was forgiveness so God sent us a savior and we must reach out to him in faith. God's grace appears to all. Paul wrote this if anyone needed grace in the Bible it was Paul. Paul when he lifted sightless eyes to heaven on the Damascus road he asked heaven he said who is speaking? And heaven's reply was, I am Jesus. And there was an interesting dynamic that was found that day. You see Saul, who would later have a name change to Paul, was a descendant or he was a son of King Saul of the Old Testament who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. And He encountered Jesus, the son of David, from the tribe of Judah. So in the Old Testament we have Saul from the tribe of Benjamin and we have David from the tribe of Judah and from the early days of King David's reign we read, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. See, there had been a long war also between Saul of Tarsus and Jesus, the son of David. Still in the New Testament, The tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah was still at war. But on that Damascus road, the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And the house of David arose and waxed stronger and stronger. Paul was never the same. His basic message became, If Jesus can save me, the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. So I ask us today, Who are we to judge who God sends through those doors? Because if He can save me, He can save anyone. As we stand across this house this morning, I'm asking us, as we transition this service into our praise and worship, let's permit the house of Saul to die in our life. Let's let the Son of David bring grace for us and for our children and for anybody who He sends. Portraits of grace are found throughout Scripture. And they're found in this life itself. And across this house and on this platform, there are individuals and people who are portraits of God's saving grace. And He continues to extend His grace to everyone. Can we lift our hands across this house this morning and thank Him for that grace that He so graciously gives? Thank you, Father. We appreciate you.